Welcome to the PQI podcast. This week, we sit down with Erica Kirshner and Jen Perry to discuss Lee-Fermini syndrome and the Lee-Fermini syndrome association. Erica is a former educator that has been undergoing treatment for metastatic breast cancer for the past 11 years. After being diagnosed at 27, she was referred for genetic testing and found to have Lee-Fermini syndrome. LFS is a hereditary TP53 variant that predisposes children and adults to a wide array of cancers. She currently works with the nonprofit Lee-Fermini Syndrome Association as a patient advocate. Jen is a breast cancer survivor who was also diagnosed with Lee-Fermini Syndrome. She is the president of the Lee-Fermini Syndrome Association. Jen knew she finally found an avenue in which to make a difference and affect change in an area that has affected not only many members of her family, but so many families around the world. She envisions a world someday where her children, grandchildren, and future family won't have to live in fear of the disease we know as cancer. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jen and Erica, for joining us on the PQI podcast today. To start out, will you please both introduce yourselves and tell us a little about who you are? And we can start with Erica. Okay, thanks. And again, Ginger, thank you so much for having us. I am Erica Kirshner. I'm a former educator, and I'm currently working with the Lee-Fermini Syndrome Association as a patient advocate. Wonderful. Thank you. Welcome, Erica. And Jen. Hi, Erica. Thanks again for having us. And hi, Erica. Uh, My name is Jen Perry, and um, I am a business consultant. I actually work in the restaurant industry, and I also am president of the Lee Fermini Syndrome Association. And I'm very uh, blessed to have Erica um, as part of our team, and we we work very closely together. All right. Well, thank you, Jen, and welcome to you, too. Um, And where are you both located? I don't know if I knew that. Um, I am in New Jersey, uh, just outside Philadelphia. Okay, awesome. And And I'm in Massachusetts in Western Mass. Oh, very nice. Our our northeastern corner, so welcome. (laughs) Um, And to start, what exactly is Lee-Fermini syndrome? Um, okay, so Lee-Fermini syndrome is an inherited predisposition to a wide range of um, cancers that um, are really, it's caused by the TP53 gene. It's a genetic syndrome, so um, it can have deletions and it can have mutations and variations in it. Okay, great. And then Erica, I know you have a personal story with LFS. So what is your story there? Sure. Um, and just like Jen, I do have Lee-Fermini syndrome. Uh, when I was 27, I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And due to my age and the advancement of my diagnosis, I was referred for genetic testing. Uh, initially, I was tested for BRCA mutations. Those were found to be negative, and my genetic counselor suggested testing for a TP53 mutation, and it came back positive, and that's how I discovered that I had this hereditary variant. So I, I know we're going to unpack it throughout throughout the podcast, but 27 is so young for breast cancer. 
So is that um, what caused them to test for that particular mutation? Is it more common in younger people? Or I guess who, what does the, the patient kind of look like? Um, so that's a great question. At the institution where I was treated, they refer any woman under 40 who has a breast okay. cancer diagnosis for genetic testing. I also happen to have an extensive family history on both my mother and father's side. So genetic testing was always something that was somewhat on my radar. But as you said, 27 was a much younger age of diagnosis for breast cancer than I ever anticipated. Yes, yes, for sure. And then Jen, I would love for you to tell tell us some of your personal story as well in this. But I would also love to hear more about LFSA and how you all are supporting um, individuals that are affected by this rare disease. And then also um, how you're you know, inspiring a direction for the treatment for the individuals and the families as well, because I know families play a huge role here. No, you're, you're absolutely right, they do. And you know, my story kind of intersects with how LFSA came about. Um, we had, as a family, um, I have two sisters. Uh, my mother had passed away from breast cancer at a very young age as well. And we found out, my, my younger sister and I found out we had LFS within a few months of each other. And back in 2010, they actually had the very first um, convening for anyone who was involved with LFS. Um, again, it was very rare. Um, it had been around for a little bit, but um, you know, people really from around the world had not gathered together at all. Um, and that I'm talking professionals, so scientists, researchers, physicians, caregivers, um, they were all in their own kind of, you know, institutions, but they hadn't joined in one convening. So in 2010, it was the very first conference for Lee-Fermini syndrome, and they invited 100 patients um, from the, you know, nationally um, to this conference. And my family happened to be one of it. So the three sisters went and mm -hmm. it was a tremendous conference. And at the end, they actually put us in a room, the hundred patients, and they asked any of us to raise our hands who wanted to be involved. And they would, they were hoping that we would just somehow stay connected as a patient group. Um, there was a little tiny blog that was uh, together with like five patients and they were hoping to get people connected because there really wasn't any support for patients with LFS. So 12 of us happened to raise our hands in the room and we started our group. And so what started as a, as a small group of 12, uh, we ended up becoming a 501c3 a few years later. It took a little bit and kind of, I guess the rest is history up until this point anyway, but hopefully it'll have more, <laughs> a lot more history to come. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it's super important. Um, I was not president when I first started, I was actually vice president. Um, unfortunately our first president, John Berkeley passed away. Um, and, uh, I ended up, I ended up being actually president before that, but he, he passed away and, um, you know, so we, our board has evolved over, over time since 2010. Okay, wonderful. Yes. And I know I found out about you at ASCO. Um, so I, I would say ha having the booth at ASCO, you guys have definitely grown in the last 13 years um, and was excited yeah. to, you know, kind, kind of first hear of you there. Well, I think um, 
when you ask about in terms of direction for treatment and, and the inspiration for some of that, I think what's been very inspirational to me as we've as we've grown as an organization is developing some of our groups, such as our medical advisory board and yeah. our scientific advisory board just a few years ago. And work having those two groups work in conjunction in order to identify priorities. Um, and you know, the silver lining about our organization, unlike some other organizations, is we're a global organization. So our family is worldwide. Um, in 2010, when I first went to that conference, there were only 565 families known globally at the time. And now wow. it's actually estimated that one in every 5,000 um, people might have LFS. Although due to lack of genetic testing, we don't know what the actual numbers are. Um, there are thousands now, but um, there's, there's probably tens of thousands more. We just don't know about it. Um, and then we also have a genetic counseling advisory group, and they've been tremendous. They actually focus on the patient's needs and how can we, as genetic counselors and caregivers, um, help not only individuals, like you said, but families. So we work on special projects as a team with genetic counselors globally. Um, and what's actually interesting about that is a lot of countries, believe it or not, don't have genetic counselors. So there's other titles in, in different ways. And a lot of times it's physicians that act as the genetic counselor as well. So we work together as a group to do all different types of projects. Um, to give you a couple examples, we just finished an incredible project on insurance, um, really helping our patients and families navigate insurance you know, issues, barriers, anything to help our patients. Um, we're working on now whole body MRIs, which is a very big um, task we're taking on as well. So from children's books to you name it, that group does that. Yeah. But it's great. It's 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 really wonderful. And that's kind of where the inspiration happens. And it's it's really all from our patients. I love it. I love it. So I know we're going to talk about genetic testing and whole body MRI in just a moment, but with you all being worldwide, are there specific regions or ethnicities, groups that LFS is more prevalent in, or is it just kind of spread um, evenly, I guess, globally? Uh, no, actually, it's very interesting you asked that question. Um, when we first found out about this in 2010 and when they first made the convening, uh, actually, Brazil had the largest patient base in the world huh. um, by far. Um, and a lot of that had to do with, um, well, there's a long story to but make a long story short, a, a, a gentleman who traveled up and down Brazil. Um, and a lot of it came from him. Um, but they their genetic testing, they were able to genetic test um, an awful lot of patients. And it's a little bit of a different mutation, but it is LFS. So um, they started with the largest group. And I, I couldn't tell you what the largest group is now. I wouldn't say it's spread evenly. Um, but as genetic testing evolves, it's it's really globally. We have we have 12 international chapters right now. Our most recent wow. one um, is Italy. And we have Africa, we have Germany, the Netherlands. We now have like Latin America, not just Brazil. So pretty much all over the world, New Zealand, Australia, um, you know, you name it. And it, it keeps growing as testing happens. We have it in Japan, Singapore. Wow. So it's super important because it, you know, the silver lining to LFS, um, I know it sounds um 
it's, it doesn't sound good when you, you're, you're predisposed to an awful lot of cancers. And if you're a woman, almost 100% going to get breast cancer. Um, but really the silver lining is when you do the research for LFS globally, it's the same gene that affects the majority of all cancers. So the silver lining is having the power of an international group. What we can offer the research community is just, I feel personally very tremendous. Uh, like it's a tremendous opportunity uh, to be able to have that as a silver lining. So it really gives us um, some power in that research, which is really important. Yes, yes, that is amazing. And then, so what is the importance of genetic testing? I know you just gave the example of Brazil and there's such a large population because there evidently was someone, you know, who who did the testing. Um, so who should be tested and how are you spreading the word on testing? Well, we're we're trying to do an awful lot with with spreading the word with testing. And I think having a genetic counseling advisory group, when that was formed, that was a big help. But um, just on a personal note, uh, when I first, when I was in my 20s, uh, you know, like I said, my mother died of breast cancer. But when I was in my 20s, I had two lumpectomies and um, I, I was having all these issues. And then I was in my 30s when I was diagnosed with cancer. And originally when they were going to treat me, they were going to give me radiation. Well, if you're a person with LFS, radiation is not just bad like for the normal person, but super bad. In fact, it can create all sorts of problems and more cancers that it may not really do for a person without LFS. So it's very dangerous for someone with LFS. And, um, you know, just as an example, had I had that done originally the way um, they had wanted to go, it could have given me an awful lot of problems. And um, so genetic testing is really important because knowledge is power. So had I known I had LFS, my treatment um, plan probably would have been much different. Um, so it was just kind of by luck, quite honestly, that I, I happened to switch institutions and I didn't end up following that treatment plan. But genetic testing is critical for that reason because it really can affect outcomes for patients. Um, so that that is why it is very important. I, if, you, if you asked me who, I know you asked me that question, if you're in a country, if you are at a facility, uh, for example, here in America, we're very blessed to have genetic counselors at most of the centers. Those would be the people that would do the genetic testing. And, you know, they are very equipped to handle uh, not only the testing itself and next steps and setting you up with a proper team, um, but also handling the psychosocial needs. And that's very important. And obviously, in other countries, they do have even if they don't have a genetic counselor, they do have systems set up, whether you're in Brazil, whether you're in Germany, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, but it, I think we're very blessed here in America to be able to have that system uh, where they're really geared towards not only identifying what testing you should have, but how to handle any results and, um, you know, next steps when that testing is done. I also completely agree with everything that Jen just said. I think genetic counselors do invaluable work. And similar to Jen's story, I was diagnosed with breast cancer first and then found out about LFS and radiation was originally part of my treatment plan too. So it can affect your treatment. But also I think if I had had genetic testing previous to my diagnosis, I would have been screened and potentially caught my cancer before it had spread. So that's another reason why it's so important to me to encourage anyone with a family history or even a personal history just to reach out to a genetic counselor. 
Yes, yes. And are you, as far as the genetic testing, um, are you finding that it's, if someone does have a family history, is is it easy for them to get something like that covered? Um, or how, I guess, how difficult is it for someone to get genetic testing covered? Depends on your insurance. I, I hate yes. to put it to that, but that's no, really the case. True. And and, that, and that's the issue we're dealing with, with whole body MRIs. Um, because as Erica mentioned, screening is absolutely critical. And if we follow the protocols um, that we should be following as LFS patients, there's all different types of screenings you should have throughout the year, but the whole body MRI should be an annual piece of the screening. So unfortunately, like even in my case, they tested my little sister first and they said they weren't going to genetically test me unless she tested positive. So because my, my insurance didn't cover the genetic testing. So- huh. It, you know, insurance is a real barrier, unfortunately, yeah. for testing, and it's it's very expensive if you don't have it. Yes, I know. Even I, I did not have Lee for me, and she did not, but I had genetic testing. Um, my mom had breast cancer at 49, and just getting that, I feel like, approved um, took quite a bit of paperwork and work on my physician's part, and luckily, she was willing to do it, but I think if you don't have someone advocating for you... Um, there, there definitely are barriers there. It, it's very stressful mentally, like having to yeah. go through that process. Like if you, if you're not getting approved, like you said, and you know, it's just, it's very stressful mentally for a lot of people. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there's other aspects of it too. So. And then I know you touched on the whole body MRI. So what will you go over a little more of the importance there and then some of the struggles? Is it just payment or some of the struggles that you're finding um, with the whole body MRI or even other tests and screenings that you should be receiving every year? Yeah, so, you know, there is a protocol that we have. Um, we have a consortium of doctors that we've been very lucky enough that have dedicated their lives to, you know, really getting to hopefully solving this Rubik's cubes, quite honestly, of LFS, right? I mean, they all have their regular day jobs as physicians and researchers, but they're also working on LFS and they have like all sorts of things you should do. Like, for example, I'm sure Erica deals with this and, and maybe more, I'm not sure, but the basics are like a, an annual whole body MRI. Every three years, you should have a colonoscopy and endoscopy. You should see your dermatologist once a year. There's, there's all sorts of things like that. Um, and if you're a woman, there's more stuff with, you know, following up with breast care, obviously with, um, you know, those types of screenings as well. Um, but the, the problem is depending on the center that you're at, um, you know, depending on their, what their setup is in their centers, and then does your insurance cover it? So just because we have documentation and papers have been, you know, out there saying this is what we need to have doesn't mean your insurance company buys into it. And when you look at the whole body MRI, it's all about the codes, right? So yeah. LFS is buried in one of these codes with like many, many other syndromes. And they're like, well, so the radiologists are like, well, it should be covered. It's it's listed in there. And the insurance companies are like, nope, 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 nope. That's only for this. Um, it's really, really tough, um, especially in the economy that we're in right now. Insurance companies really don't want to approve it. So um, it's a challenge. And doctors spend an, an, an immense amount of time fighting peer reviews and, and insurance companies trying to get these covered for their patients. And they're just as frustrated as well. 
So it's, um, it's tough. It's, it's tough. And it, it really helps a patient. Like Erica was saying, you know, when you have a screening and you can catch an, a cancer at stage one or zero or, or maybe two versus stage four um, or someone who, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's any stage after four. I don't think so. But, you know, it, the worst case scenario, we'll put it that way. Imagine the the longevity for somebody if you catch it right away, um, not yeah. to mention the physical pain and and some of these other things, depending on the type of cancer that you have. So um, it's so important to have this screening so that our patients can stay as healthy as possible. Um, you know, it's really important. Well, and I just feel like on the insurance end, it would make sense to me that it would be a lot less ex expensive for them to catch something yeah. at stage zero or one than to pay for stage four treatment as well. Um, we agree with you. We totally yes. agree with you. <laughs> that would make sense. But. You you would think I have been in treatment for 11 years now with metastatic breast cancer, and I'm fairly confident that it would have benefited my insurance company to screen me earlier and catch it earlier. But that is still something like Jen said, we struggle with getting approval for all of the recommended screenings. And, our, our, you know, with LFS, it's not just about taking care of the one cancer you were diagnosed with. You yeah. know, like for Erica and I, breast cancer is almost a given. Um, but, you know, I've had many other different things that have been concerns. And even though you have one cancer, you know, you have a 60% chance of getting another completely unrelated cancer. So it's not just about, well, is the breast cancer going to come back? It's about, okay, am I getting colon cancer? Am I getting brain cancer? Am I getting lung cancer? There's so many different cancers that we can get, and we have a very high chance of getting that. So, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many patients that I speak to on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that have had two, three, and four cancers, completely different, completely unrelated, you know, not from being metastatic or anything. So screenings become even so much exponentially more important for someone with LFS. Well, and talk, talk about what you said earlier and li living in a stressful mental situation all of the time. Um, I cannot, I cannot imagine. So, yeah. Then, yeah. Um, do you know how close or are researchers um, at all close to finding any type of treatment like gene-based or any, any other type of treatment for LFS? In terms of clinical treatment, there isn't anything out there yet for that. We're working, um, we actually sponsor different research uh, with aggressive researchers that are trying to, you know, do things differently. And there are some very promising things out there, but they just haven't come to fruition yet. Unfortunately, as you can imagine, the cost of research is yeah. just, it's its crazy. And um as much as we're trying to fundraise and sponsor research through our consortium of, of researchers that you know really understand what's going on, um, part of why we actually developed our scientific advisory board was to bring, we wanted to think differently about it. We wanted to bring in people who not necessarily were LFS experts that were experts though in the areas that we needed to have them in order to help us um, deal with the P53 gene. So they're experts in the P53 gene and, okay. and globally. So um, like one with mouse models, one with all different types of stuff, immunology and, and all different expertise. There's about 
I think there's eight of them on the board. So as they come together and work with our medical advisory board, it's become it's become something kind of magical. And again, we have a couple, thanks to our research that we've sponsored, we have two things that are being researched right now that have some promising results that, you know, hopefully in the next five to 10 years, we might see something clinical coming out of it. And um, we just have to find a way to uh, keep raising the money to make that happen. Yes. And you, you say five to 10, but I feel like 10 seems like such a long time. Um, and it is so, when you're talking about individual patients, right? Yes, um, it is. It is. And with with the research, so I knew I know what drew what drew me into the booth at ASCO um, was your little your little squish balls, and they were elephants. Um, but oh, from, elephants. yes, I love yes. your elephant. Um, but from what I understand, research has highlighted the importance of elephants in clinical research associated with LFS. So could you explain more about their role in the research? I will. And, um, you know, it's kind of a funny story how that evolved. Um, and I'm sure Dr. Schiffman wouldn't mind me telling this story. But um, back in 2017, when we had our first youth workshop, um, it was the first time we had gathered um, youth together. So people, let's say 13 to, to 21 at the time, um, but we actually went to the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Utah, and Dr. Schiffman, we had heard about his research with the elephants, and the cool thing about that is the zoo, where it all started, was right by the Huntsman, because that's where he lives, and, you know, he was actually at the zoo with his two kids one day, and he was listening to the elephants and, you know, stuff like that, and if you know Josh, he's just the most positive He's like a big kid. He's awesome. Dr. Shipman. And he's listening to this and they're talking about how they keep the elephants healthy at the zoo. And, you know, they draw blood, you know, and he's like, draw blood. And, and they, they talk about how they hardly ever get cancer. So you, the interesting thing about elephants or whales or the very, very large um, animals is when the larger you are, really, the more your cells um, do all sorts of different things that could predispose them to have something go wrong with them, right? So you would think that elephants would be, would get cancer all the time, but ironically, they hardly ever get cancer. So he was intrigued by this and actually started doing all sorts of research on it. And uh, our youth at the, at the workshop actually got to see, um, actually go into his lab and actually see some of this research and some of this um, potential things that you're going to see coming out in the next five to 10 years are probably going to be coming from his work with the elephants and stuff that has evolved from that. So he actually has, um, there's a group of them that actually have a separate company called Peel Therapeutics. And we actually sponsored um, some of the research for that. So we're very proud to have done that. And um, elephants have become for our organization and for our patients, a symbol of hope. Aww. So if you ever look on our website and you see the elephants and some of the things that we have on there for that, you'll see that it's always about hope. Um, I can tell you one thing, one thing that's very important to me personally, and as the president of the organization is, I will always approach this from a position of hope. I don't want anyone finding out they have a diagnosis, no matter how negative it may seem, that they don't have hope. So um, the elephant has really become our symbol for that. And uh, it's pretty great. So I, I love it. I love elephants, but I think I love them even more now. So that is awesome. <laughs> They're all pretty special to us. We all have like something elephant in our life, oh. earrings, 
you know, like pillows, whatever. I have ornaments on my Christmas tree. Like we have the little squishy things everywhere. <laughs> so I have them um, everywhere as well. They're all over. Yeah. Us, so. Right. Erica, <laughs> yeah. you have them in all different colors, right? I think we yeah. have them. We just started getting them in different colors. Our countries have them with their language on them. Oh my like God. Germany just got them like in German. So they're handing them out. You know, Germany is a very, very incredible international chapter that we have. One of the first ones we had and um, they have the elephants with it on it. So like the elephants have become the thing. And I think everyone should have something that represents hope for them. You know, whenever you yeah. have that kind of blue moment, you look at, you squish the elephant yeah. and you have some more hope. <laughs> that, that is fantastic. And what one trip to the zoo starts. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So Erica, I know that you have spent, um, you know, sev several years, I'm sure, in, in and out of clinics um, in treatment. So what tips do you have for practitioners when they're seeing patients in clinical practice with LFS? Yes, um, I have had 11 plus years now of uh, time spent in different yeah doctor's offices with multiple providers, a range of experiences. And I think the biggest thing I would encourage any provider to know first and foremost is to educate themselves about LFS and other genetic syndromes as much as possible because we're out there and we're going to show up in their practice. And also just to recognize that this is a lifelong condition and has so many implications. Like Jen said, there are all of these screening protocols. There's a lot of psychosocial implications for us. It's something that we manage every day for the rest of our lives. And especially as a young person, like when I was diagnosed at 27, just to be a little empathetic to what they're going through and try to imagine what it's like to navigate as a younger person and be aware that patients' experiences are different and try to gauge what level of risk tolerance your patients have as well. That's something that was so meaningful to me. I had a lot of providers that would check in with me and ask me how I was handling everything. And especially for me personally, with my dermatologist, I've had a lot of biopsies happen at my screenings. And we always have that conversation about whether to be aggressive or whether to monitor and surveil. So I think partnering with your patients and helping them be a part of their treatment plan makes a huge, huge difference. Great, great advice there. And I feel like uh, the everything with young people could be a whole nother podcast in itself and everything you, you deal with in your 20s when you have cancer, as opposed to um, maybe a little Absolutely. bit older. Absolutely, right. It is, for me, it was just a very different experience being diagnosed at 27 than it would be for somebody post-menopause. And just being mindful of that makes a huge difference. And also, I, when I first came to my primary care doctor because I found something during a self-exam, he wasn't initially that concerned about it. And again, this was before I had genetic testing and knew that I had LFS, but he kept saying, well, you're young, it's probably nothing. And, you know, yes, nine times out of 10, it might be nothing when a young person comes to you with a concern, but I would just encourage any provider to keep an open mind and remember that there are zebras <laughs> among yes. us. So yeah, that would be my advice too. 
I think that's great advice. And also for for the young people to keep seeking another opinion, if you know, the first one doesn't work for you or doesn't take take you seriously. Right. Um, I do think about that often because my primary care, as I mentioned, was not that concerned. He's like, oh, maybe just mention it to your OBGYN. And thankfully I did because he was the one that sent me for screening and I was diagnosed with advanced breast cancer. And had I not followed through and advocated for myself and made that decision, I don't know where I would be. Yes. Yes. Um, well, with with that advocating for yourself, um, how can the public continue to advocate for support in fighting this disease? Well, I I would say a couple of things. Um, as I mentioned, fundraising is critical. Um, truly, without the dollars, it's very hard to accelerate the research, um, and it's really difficult. Um, as you can imagine, research of any kind is super expensive. Um, both with the labor of it, the time of it, the materials of it. It's it's kind of crazy how expensive everything is. So fundraising is really critical. And I think people sometimes think fundraising has to be all about the big dollars. And I can tell you as an organization, most of our stuff is grassroots. It's bake sales. Some of our youth have had, it's it's walks, it's runs, it's, you know, it's it's all the little things that people do. So I would just encourage people to know that fundraising makes a difference, whether it's $1 or $1 million. Um, So especially when you're a rare disease, it's very hard to get those dollars. So fundraising is critical. Um, I would would encourage everyone to go to our our website, lfsassociation.org, and really register on our website. You don't have to have LFS um, to register on our website to get information on it. And as we talked about earlier on here, it's not just about the patients. Um, it's about the families. It's about the friends that support people. Um, and it's just, it, it, I think almost everyone now knows someone in their lives who have been touched by cancer in some way. So no, no matter what, as I mentioned earlier, the silver lining is when you support the research for LFS, you're really supporting the cure for cancer. So that's super important. So if you register on our website, you can certainly help. You can follow us on social media or on Instagram or on Facebook. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we try to be available on all the different platforms that are there. Um, we're on Twitter as well. Um, and then we also have a, an annual fundraiser we just kind of started. Um, it's called Climb for a Cure. It was started by a patient and she did it on her own for like a couple of years. And now we're trying to do that globally. So that's something you're going to see a lot of information on, especially if you sign up on the website. Um, that would be great, uh, supporting us and climb for the care. And again, uh, if you've been touched by cancer in your life, it, it can make a huge difference. So that's really how you can, how the public could continue to help advocate, you know, for fighting this genetic syndrome. It'd be, it'd be tremendous. Is this, is this climbing, like climbing a mountain, like Everest or something, or is it? Quite Everest. It could be like the little hill in your backyard. <laughs> You can pretty much do whatever you I'm want. I'm in Florida, so we we don't have too we don't have too many hills here. Okay, yeah. you know like the golf hills, like on a yeah. 18 course yeah. thing. And in Florida, it could be like that, like the little hills where like the sand traps are and stuff. Yeah. It can be anything you want, quite honestly. Um, but it's yeah. it's really you know, it, it's it'd be tremendous to participate, and it's getting a team together and working as a team to raise some money and have a lot of fun with family and friends. 
I think that that gives you a reason to go to the North Carolina mountains for us there too. See, so, it's a good excuse. Go. Yes, <laughs> yes. And we'll definitely link um, your website in our show notes and any, any, any other links that you would like to send us, we're happy to, to put there for everyone. And Thank then it'd be tremendous. I'm going to have one final fun question for both of you that we ask all of our podcast guests, um, but just anything last, lastly that you would like to add um, and I just want to tell you and I'll tell you again after the question but thank you both Erica and Jen so much uh, for coming on here and for sharing your story you you two give me hope and I think you're both amazing women and you know what you're doing for others is giving them hope and pretty pretty amazing in itself so thank you but any anything else you would like to add before the final fun question well, thank you, Ginger, again, for this opportunity and for having us. And I just want to reiterate again, I am the only person in my family, the only surviving person in my family with LFS. So I can't tell you how much it's meant to me to have the support of the LFSA and to be among a community of people that completely understand what it's like, because it can be really isolating when you are managing this on your own. So I would encourage anyone listening that is dealing with this and feels like they have no one, you have an entire community of people ready to embrace you and support you. So I'm just grateful that we're getting the word out about this. Thank yeah, you. And to, yeah, and thank you, Ginger. And, uh, you know, Erica is beyond inspirational um, to me. And I, I think the one thing I want to add is sometimes people ask me, you know, why do you keep doing it after all these years? And it's for people like Erica, um, when you can help or have the opportunity to even be able to help one more person, um, it, I can't tell you what it does for me personally. It just helps me um, deal with, with you know, the enormity of LFS. Um, and, and I'm a mom. I have two daughters that have, have LFS. Um, again, I didn't know I had LFS when I had children. And um it's just, uh, you know, they inspire me as well as my sisters and my family and my mom, even though she's not alive anymore. But, um, you know, I, I think it's really important if I could say one thing about advocacy. I know for me personally, it was very hard to advocate for myself. I, I think I'm okay at advocating for other people, but I'm not so great at advocating for myself. And if I could just tell people one thing is it's okay to ask for people to help advocate for you. And I think that's a really important thing because we lose a lot of our young kids um, who it's very hard to just deal with and, um, you know, continue surveillance and things like that. And a lot of adults, they struggle and it's, it's very daunting to have a genetic syndrome and to know that it's never going away. And it's okay if you can't advocate for yourself, it's okay to get help and have other people, a friend, you know, anyone to help you advocate. So I just want to let people know, don't be afraid to have people help you through it. Great advice. Thank you. And you you may be answering the final fun question already. Um, so for each of you and whoever has their answer can go first. Um, but if you could give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? That is such a great question. <laughs> it might be a little on the nose to say this, but I would tell my 18-year-old self to reach out to a genetic counselor and uh, be more vigilant about my family history than I was. I think when I was 18, I 
took my health for granted. I have a pretty extensive family history of cancer, but um, you know, I didn't think that it was something I needed to be concerned about as a young person. And then of course I had this diagnosis at 27. So I would say, and along the lines of what Jen was saying to, to be comfortable advocating for myself and taking my health seriously and make it a priority from a young age. Yes. Great. Great advice for your 18 year old self or for any of us, um, 18 or beyond. And then Jen. Well, I guess for me, um, I guess I would say trust your gut. And I know when you're young, it's hard to do that sometimes because we're not as experienced in life. Right. (laughs) But I wish I had trusted my gut. I probably would have found some of my tumors a little bit earlier. I was lucky enough to actually have a gynecologist. I swear she has saved my life um, twice. And uh, if it wasn't for Dr. Bagat, I probably, I really feel I wouldn't be here. (laughs) She was the one that was very proactive for me and stuff, you know, because I, even though my mother had been sick and had died of cancer and stuff, um, I still didn't trust my gut because people, you know, it's sometimes doctors don't believe young people, right? Um, They're like, oh, like, like Erica kind of experienced, oh, it's just hormones, hormonal things going on, whatever. Um, So trust your gut. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say you want to get something checked and don't second guess yourself. You know, you'd rather be safe than sorry, I guess is what I'm saying. And um, trust your gut, no matter how young you are, it's okay. Great advice as well. Well, Thank you both so much again for joining us on the podcast and sharing your stories. And we just really appreciate the message that you all are working so hard to get out. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the PQI podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Erica and Jen. You can find the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts and on encoda.org. That's encoda.org. You can also find us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We hope you tune in next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.